Greetings, this is Cody, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus, where my guest again is Dr. Robert Price. In our previous discussion, where we talked about the matrix, we got more into uh, your own background, uh, Dr. Price. So I wouldn't want to simply go over it all again, but, but in essence, you are a New Testament scholar, the author of books such as The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man and The Amazing Colossal Apostle. Uh, and you're not only uh, an atheist, uh, if you feel comfortable using that term, or skeptic, uh, but you're also skeptical of even just the existence of the historical Jesus, whereas uh, I, I'm a believing Christian, uh, which makes our pairing here today something uh, like something out of a Neil Simon play. Uh, in any case, we, we both share a love of <laughs> history, uh, share a love of the Bible, and uh, we're also just fascinated by uh, different religious ideas and systems. And uh, maybe maybe more importantly, we're also not hostile to people to the other side of us. Uh, we, we can disagree on many things and still have a pleasant conversation, which is uh, why I'm pleased to have you here again uh, to talk. So how are you doing today, Dr. Price? Oh, real well. Uh, it's rainy out and I don't have a headache, so miracles uh, still abound, I guess. <laughs> yeah, my wife has that issue with the, uh, the, the rain, the humidity, and the headaches. So uh, unfortunate. She's wanting to move down south, too, and I keep saying maybe we should move out west somewhere where it's drier. So I, I do hear that Satan is liable to test people in the desert. Uh, so I don't know, but uh, that might be preferable to your headaches. <laughs> I, mean, I think I think it might be. Uh, although although with parametric headaches, you don't have to fast for forty days. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I did want to uh, um, compliment you the last time. I didn't mention it, but um, I love the, the titles of your books about Jesus and the Apostle Paul. The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man is, of course, a take on the 1957 uh, film, The Incredible Shrinking Man, which is uh, penned by Richard Matheson, who's one of my favorite authors and screenwriters and television writers. Mm. Um, and uh, also The Amazing Colossal Apostle, which is a take on a movie the same year uh, by B-Horror director Bert I. Gordon, The Amazing Colossal Man. Um, and I just want to say I, I share your love of uh, old films and particularly like old horror films and, and like camp. <laughs> um, and uh, in my own living room, I have uh, posters from Manos, The Hands of Fate, They Live, and also the original King Kong and Dracula films and uh, other stuff around the house. But um, Bravo. Yeah, another, another point of contact. I think that's one of the things that I've always found interesting and appreciated about you is uh, that sort of shared uh, enthusiasm. A man of taste, that's for sure. <laughs> well, you, you know someone's a man of taste if they have the similar taste as you. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so we're talking today about uh, Twin Peaks The Return, uh, which came out last year. And and the reason I've, I've wanted to talk to you about it is we're, we're both fans of the show. And you highlighted uh, on Facebook last year, is, I think it was one, one particular episode we're going to be talking about. I watched it and was sort of dumbfounded and turned onto Facebook and saw some of your commentary on um, the Gnostic themes that you were seeing there. And it was like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know, maybe not everything David Lynch does is, is completely incoherent. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, to discussing this this topic with you today. And, and there's a number of reasons. Um, first of all, a lot of my listeners are interested in theology and competing worldviews, and many of them are Christians. Uh, and for Christians in particular, Gnosticism is uh, significant historically because of how it shaped the early church uh, as it reacted uh, against Gnostic movements uh, in particular. Uh, it's also relevant uh, today as a case study for how different ideas um, and philosophies can shape how we think through the influence of media, even if we aren't explicitly aware of what those ideas are and where they came from. 
I'm also a big fan of Twin Peaks and really was interested and in, in excited about this new season. Uh, I do want to clarify for anybody who uh, is listening who hasn't seen the show that uh, there is some content, uh, violent, sexual language, etc., that some might find bothersome. So I'm not necessarily saying everyone should watch it, but uh, I, I certainly found it very interesting. Um, with that caveat out of the way, I did want to introduce the, this idea of Gnosticism, particularly for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, I'll start us off uh, kind of briefly and then turn it over to you because it's more of an area that you uh, are knowledgeable about than I am. Um, but I'll just kind of start off by saying that Gnosticism was a movement uh, with some similarities to Orthodox Christianity, uh, in which most scholars, I think, would claim properly began in the second century, uh, though an incipient proto-Gnosticism can be gleaned from various New Testament books, such as 1 John, which refers to the belief of some, uh, that Jesus never had a physical body, and of course Gnostics believed that the physical world was corrupted, so the Messiah couldn't be human in their view. There are also possible references to Gnosticism in Colossians and in 1 Timothy 6.20, which refers to uh, pseudonymu gnosios, uh, or false gnosis or knowledge. Uh, and I understand that you would tend to see Gnosticism as beginning earlier than the second century, and actually having an influence on uh, the ideas of some of the New Testament writers, but, but apart from that, distinction would you say that what i said there's kind of a fair summation of at least how a lot of scholars see the, Gnost the origins of gnosticism yeah that's that's right and you can uh set out several possible <clears throat> routes for gnostic thinking whenever it became um gelled into the systems we know of it, it seems to depend on uh, Platonism, Zoroastrianism, uh, and uh, the mystery religions. I, I don't know if it's ever going to be possible to really sort out any of those connections or, or uh, other ones with ancient religions. It's, uh, it's like uh, none of them were hermetically sealed, so mm. often you, you can spot similarities and suspect what came from what, but there's no way to know unless uh, somebody can invent a time machine. Yeah, and, and my would, understanding... Oh, sorry, go on. Which would? No, I'm just making a stupid remark. Go ahead. <laughs> um, my understanding is, you know, there wouldn't have been anybody back then that would have referred to themselves as, I'm, you know, I'm a Gnostic. So it's, it's kind of like a later uh, appellation that we've kind of applied uh, to different movements that have certain things in common. But, but there it doesn't seem to be like any one particular Gnosticism but it's just more, you know, well, certain ideas or themes or, or whatever that, that seem somewhat constant through these groups. Is that is that also fair? Yeah, though, I believe there there were some who did actually claim the label uh, Gnostic. And um, lately, well, it shows old, I'm getting, um, in, in the last uh, couple of decades, Karen King and other people, there was mysticism, and I, I think she and other like-minded scholars are thinking that it was kind of a blanket term equivalent to heresy, and and uh, and I think uh, she is trying to say that there were all these themes uh, that that were washing around, and that it, it's a misification to make an ideal type. Uh, that's 
I guess that's true to some degree, but it's unhelpful to say that because you could just as well say there's no such thing as Buddhism or Presbyterianism because not all of the related groups are exactly alike. Uh, there's a lot of her in uh, recent scholarship to remember what an ideal type is supposed to be. It's like a theoretical a textbook model of, of a phenomenon uh, which which enables you to measure the all the in this case the religious groups that are that are lumped together that way there's no such thing as a mystery religion because all of them were not exactly alike somebody was absent from class uh, the day they explained what an ideal type was. But yeah, there were various <laughs> ones. Uh, like we, we know there were encratite groups that uh, didn't uh, believe, well, uh, let me say that, that had the celibacy gospel. You had to renounce sex even within marriage to be saved. <clears throat> and um, these people tended to believe in docetism, that there was uh, no fleshly body of Christ <clears throat> for the reason you mentioned. Well, they weren't Gnostics. Uh, they had just had this particular doctrine they shared with it. So it is a bit of a mess, but I do see a lot of these trends as pre-Christian and influencing uh, the New Testament and and uh, what became Orthodox Christianity, but it's almost semantic, right? When you say, "Well, I know they had this big conference back in the '60s, trying to get everybody to agree on terms: proto-Gnostic, pre-Gnostic, Gnostic, etc." It's uh, just semantics, really, uh, and uh, and the, the real question is dating because there's a huge area of uncertainty about the dating of the New Testament documents. So a lot of this stuff, I think, is really uh, moot. Uh, <laughs> you just have to look at it case by case, like the first John thing. Does this sound like Gnosticism? Well, if so, you know, why is it in there? So uh, before we start making like connections to uh, Twin Peaks, the return, we should probably give more of an explanation about like what Gnostics believed uh, and some of the important uh, uh, figures and types uh, in their philosophy. C could you give us something of a kind of a short crash course of, about how they saw the world and some of these mythological figures that, that are that are in Gnosticism? Well, uh, there are uh, common <clears throat> assumptions that uh, are shared by Sethians, Valentinians, and other Gnostic groups, and uh, boiled down common version, Gnostics were dealing with the question of theodicy, you know, the ways of trying to explain how the world, if it was created and ruled by a good God, is that, I mean, this is a long-standing problem in all religions. Uh, their uh, solution to this was to say that it wasn't created by the ultimate and good God. Uh, I think the Valentinians called him the unknowable father. And uh, what it was all created lower down on the chain. They believed, and this is kind of like uh, Neoplatonism, they believed that um, the father had emanated from himself, kind of like rays emanating from the sun, a uh, series of what they called syzygies or yoke fellows, and pairs of what they called ions, uh, which comes eon, meaning you know a huge amount of time. But they had in mind uh, some sort of 
hypostases, very much like the persons of the Trinity, only loads more of them. Uh, each pair begat and bore pair, and that was how they were emanated, until finally, according to the Valentinians, there were 365 ions. Now, that's an odd number. Well, the last sequence was named uh, Sophia, Wisdom, and it's pretty clear she was, she's derived from uh, Jewish philosophy with uh, Sophia, the, the foreman of God's creation, and so on, Proverbs 8, I think, Sirach, and the Wisdom of Solomon, and uh, redubbed the Logos in Philo of Alexandria. She wanted the knowledge that was forbidden to her and uh, wanted uh, to to have a child like the other pairs of Ions did. Somehow she managed a virgin birth, and the result was the creator or the demiurge term derived from Plato, who thought that the, uh, the gods were above um, dirtying their hands by creating a world. And so they created a lower being who was responsible for um, creating a material world patterned on the heavenly world, but imperfect since matter is imperfect and is always decaying and changing. Well, the demiurge came right out of Platonism, but is central to Gnosticism. And uh, so what did the Demiurge do? Well, he decided, he thought, he, he was even more ignorant than his mom, and imagined that he was the ultimate deity. And so he, he, they quote uh, God from Isaiah saying, I am God, there is none beside me. And then he hears the laughter from above as his mother says, uh, you, you're blind, you're a fool, and uh, there's a whole other world up here. But he decides he will play the role of a God. God, and rather than emanating uh, the, uh, a world of light, he either creates matter or finds it, um, there are different views on that in Gnosticism, and decides to shape it into a world. Well, first he creates the archons or rulers who are uh, his his angels, and they're really the, the fallen sons of God from the Old Testament. Uh, when when uh, the New Testament speaks of the principalities and powers, that rule this world. That's, again, the fallen angels of Genesis 6. Well, the Gnostics borrowed that, and they said that these archons are the henchmen of the, the Demiurge. So it's, and the Demiurge, they said, is the Old Testament God, Yahweh Sabaoth, whom they called Ayal Debaoth, a kind of garbled version of it. And the archons are his angels, and they're evil, all of them, because matter is evil. The Gnostics understand themselves to be the rare humans who have a spark of the divine. It seems a little inconsistent to me that they didn't think everybody had one. quite understand that uh, blip. But uh, the Gnostics felt that they did have a spark of the divine light. It's like the Atman in Hinduism. And... Um, they knew they didn't fit here. They're strangers in a strange land. Um, in, in our last discussion, uh, we talked about the Matrix. There was one thing you brought up that I think is kind of significant in Gnosticism, and particularly for uh, Twin Peaks The Return, which is uh, this kind of idea of the Redeemer 
and how it's actually coming face to face with this knowledge or gnosis itself that uh, is redeeming in some way. Can you kind of uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the Gnostic revealer begins the, uh, the, the suffering Gnostics who are frustrated by this world in which they rightly do not feel at home. And he tells them, well, there's good reason for that. You have the divine spark, the real you that's from the heavenly pleroma. And I can give you the, the knowledge to enable you to cease being reincarnated incarnated in the material world and uh, at death to return through the heavenly spheres uh, but those spheres are guarded by the archons and uh, you're going to have to know certain things to get past them the names of the archons or passwords or who knows what all uh, and um, the, the redeemer is a, a distinct person from the revealer uh, the the redeemer is actually the uh, the man of light in the uh, in the hymn of the pearl, a classic Gnostic text from the, the apocryphal Acts of Thomas. Uh, we have this mythicized version of this, where the redeemer is sent. Well, actually, it says a pr a prince is uh, from I forget where he's supposed to be from the East, is uh, sent uh, with a message. And while he's there, it's sort of like the prodigal son, uh, he forgets who he is and gets embroiled in the distractions till finally he sort of gets a telegram from, the, from, from home saying, what are you doing? Remember who you are and why you're there. Uh, and so it's oh, like the, the prodigal, he comes to himself. And so he does deliver the message and then hastens to get the heck out of there and go back to the Pleroma, stripping off the Egyptian garb he's been wearing. This represents the, the, uh, the, the true souls of the, uh, of the Gnostics awakened from their slumber and headed back to the Pleroma. Well, in Peaks, this is Agent Cooper. Uh, he has, they've tried to send him back from the Pleroma, which is the, uh, symbolized as this old, uh, looks like a kind of a classic ancient theater uh, with uh, the giant in there and his smoking jacket and this woman with him. And you see Major Briggs sitting around there and so on. Uh, and uh, he, he's... Um, supposed to he's been in the black lodge while his syzygy right his uh his an alternate version of him has been creating havoc back in the world as a criminal murderer madman etc well they should switch places but this guy isn't moving they try to send dale back into the world but he thinks he's this other guy you know the whatever his name is and gradually he begins to awaken and finally snaps out of it that's the redeemed redeemer and his mission is to undo the death of lara palmer so that whole thing the show taken so darn long to get agent cooper back in action well because he's he has to be asleep uh having forgotten him his identity and his mission the struggle is over and he awakens so that that is the major feature of the show 
squarely on Gnostic soteriology. Well, I'm assuming that most people listening are going to be familiar with uh, the show. Um, for those who maybe aren't or who, who it's been a while, I might give kind of a, a real brief kind of synopsis just so when we go into those details, um, they'll sort of fit into a place, maybe a framework. Um, so the original show, uh, which which aired and uh, premiered in 1990, was created by uh, Mark Frost and the famously bizarre filmmaker David Lynch, and it followed uh, FBI agent Dale Cooper's attempt to solve the murder of a young homecoming queen, Laura Palmer, in the fictional northwestern U.S. town of Twin Peaks, which, in the process, led him to discover uh, the paranormal influence behind Laura's death and its connection to a place in another dimension called the Black Lodge. Um, the original series ends, of course, spoiler, with Agent Cooper going into the Black Lodge and being replaced by a malevolent doppelganger called Bob. And the new series, which just premiered last year, uh, picked up 25 years later with Bob's present-day twisted exploits and a protracted wait for Cooper to emerge from the Black Lodge and reclaim his reputation. Um, and for those who haven't seen the show, you know, obviously you're going to you know, expect some spoilers and also some confusion uh, as we talk about it. And those who have seen the show are already going into it confused and aren't likely, aren't likely to do any more damage to them. Now, one episode in particular of The Return um, that kind of serves as almost like a cosmogony of the whole Twin Peaks universe uh, is episode eight. And um, that's the one that, that I watched and found so bizarre. And then I, once I read your commentary on it, I thought, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, and so in this one, it seems to place the origin of this Bob character, this malevolent being, uh, in the first nuclear uh, warhead test in New Mexico in 1945. It also seems to suggest that Laura's origin uh, is in some other realm and that she's brought into the world as a means of combat combating um, this corrupt cosmogony and particularly Bob's influence. Um, so that's the, um, you know, the, the basic kind of plot line or, or structure that we're dealing with. And uh, you kind of hinted at Cooper's, the connection of sort of Cooper to this revealer figure maybe we should start with this whole cosmogony, this whole cosmogony thing. So in episode eight, you see this nuclear warhead test. The camera sort of goes into this crazy close-up, and there's all these weird things. In particular, there's this uh, figure who I think is uh, given in the credits the name of the experiment. So he's like this sort of personified, uh, or this sort of personification of what I, what I guess I would sort of call this, this nuclear weapon is like man's wisdom that's been corrupted. Uh, in a way, you know, that it creates this this terrible, awful physical force um, that's ultimately destructive. Mm. And this personification of it, who's called the experiment, spews up these globules, I guess you'd call them, and, and, and one of them uh, is shown with the face of Bob, who, of course, is the, the villain who sort of takes over uh, people and sort of possesses them in, in uh, the first season and who has replaced Agent Cooper or Coop um, at the end of that and into this series as well. So that's that's kind of like the, the starting point. And then maybe instead of me summarizing all this, I, I'm interested in sort of seeing, hearing it sort of from your perspective as you're watching it, what you're seeing sort of starting with that, this sort of the experiment and Bob coming out of it and then how the giant and his pair, because there's, there's the, the emanations are paired. So there's this woman there who's with him. Uh, but actually, he's called the fireman, which is interesting, too, because his, his job is to put out this fire, mm. I suppose. 
so and then they bring in Laura Palmer as a, as a response to what what they've seen here with Bob and, and the experiment. So so what is it that you're seeing as you're watching this that's making you make this connection to maybe having you see this connection to Gnosticism? Well, for one thing, you have to try to separate the narrative of what's actually happening with the named characters and all that from uh, the the mythical subtext. For instance, as you rightly said, this seems to be a cosmogony, a, a world origin myth. And, and how can that be the result of a nuclear test? Well, the nuclear test, it, it sort of implies they're ripping a, a rift into another dimension. Something else we see, couple of times in the the return series in different contexts like when uh, diane and cooper are driving along and pass into this alternate reality or when um uh when uh well major briggs and so forth was taken up um so w there's there's the weird happenings in the story of twin peaks and running parallel underneath it is the the mythic subtext and uh, the um, the uh, place where the the fireman and the woman live is the White Lodge, and that seems to be the divine pleroma from which revelation and salvation come. Uh, what they see on that screen is uh, this this horned character who is eventually identified as Judy, which they say just happens to sound punningly like a Chinese term that uh, refers to this entity. Well, that is the demiurge. And uh, they've um, made the demiurge's creations more like the emanations from the pleroma, but that makes sense because the one is a copy of the other. And among those, uh, those emanations are the the Sizigis, uh, the the yoke fellows of uh, of Bob and Lara, uh, and the one is evil, the other uh, is is righteous, and their one is to try to they're they're both trying to undo each other, as we we eventually find out. Um, but there's also the uh, the the doppelganger motif that Bob and Cooper are twins, and of course the whole show is based on the twin theme. You even in the original you had two characters named Mike and two Bobbies and so on, uh, and uh, so uh, what uh, what. Uh, Lara is in the Gnostic term is she's the fallen Sophia, uh, the the fallen wisdom that that uh, trying to beyond the the boundary of the pleroma, uh, and and uh, I this gets so messy. The demiurge managed to attract his mother, Sophia, to look into the placid light material. She saw in this still surface her own reflection, and this reflected light was then taken and made um, the uh, the basis for uh, the the world to come alive. Well, so there are now two Sophias: the the heavenly, the fallen Sophia, who's uh, called. Akamoth, 
which is just a Hellenization of Chokhmah, Hebrew for wisdom. It's interesting, the epistle of James speaks of wisdom uh, from above and a wisdom from below that is devilish. And this is why during the, the first series, she engages in both good, which comes naturally to her, meals on wheels, the cheerleading, all this stuff, and depraved behavior. And why is she doing that? Well, I think it says that she's trying to fight against the evil influence that uh, is in her. Where'd she get that? Well, uh, the uh, the Judy Demiurge figure appeared as this loathsome insult to her mother, living out in the desert, and uh, entered her, went down her throat, just why... Um, I can't think of her name, but uh, Lara's mother is also uh, always depressed and an alcoholic and so forth. Well, the evil has simply dominated her now. And um, she, um, she no doubt passed on the taint to Lara, who is uh, like Helen, the consort of Simon Magus, another version of Gnosticism, where Simon was the heavenly man of light and came into the earthly realm to redeem the Ennoia, the first thought, which is another synonym for, for the Sophia, because she had been trapped in the material world uh, in and had been many times reincarnated. She had been Helen of Troy and was now a, a, a whore in a brothel in Tyre. And Simon uh, rescued her, kind of like in Taxi Driver, and uh, she became his consort, and she represented the fallen wisdom and the souls that Simon, the Gnostic Redeemer, would uh, would liberate for all those who believed in him. Well, Lara, righteous but depraved, is the fallen Sophia living in the brothel of the material world. And, um, and Cooper is playing the role now of Simon Magus, the Gnostic Redeemer, who has to rescue her from the death, which was the final outcome of her life as the debased fallen Sophia, and he does. He undoes uh, her her death in this puzzling sequence at the very end. Uh, he finds her living with with the amnesia of what she was like in the other world, but she finally kind of begins to remember it, and they're trying to bring her home, and that's where the series ends. Cooper's frustrated. What year is this? Uh, why are these people living in the, the house that I know is Laura's house and so on? But uh, that's uh, what what the deal is with Bob. He's the uh, the e an evil archon, and uh, Laura is the fallen Sophia, Cooper is the, uh, like Simon Magus, the Gnostic Redeemer, but it doesn't resolve at the end, really, which is why I dearly hope there will be another season, though I doubt it. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it seems that it's it's concluded in a way, I mean, there's, there's something that's kind of open in the sense that, you know, well, so she comes to terms, I guess, like remembers it, and in the Gnostic viewpoint, her coming back, to terms with the truth should have released her um but it doesn't and, and 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 it seems that what sort of happened is by you know putting whatever it is that's you know 
trying to destroy her, bring her down the, uh, you know, the demiurge or whatever. He's like, he's kind of moving her around from place to place to try to hide her. Um, and that somehow by, by hiding her, he's, you know, trying to keep, he keep her away from coming to the, the full realization of what's happening and sort of becoming redeemed. And it, it seems that that makes a lot of sense. It seems that she's, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. So she sort of comes to this knowledge, but what's interesting is at the end of the the very last scene in the, in the series, she comes to this knowledge, but she doesn't, it doesn't seem that it redeems her in any way. She just sort of lets out this, this scream. And that's like the end of the show. Hmm. Um, and and I, I wonder if there's maybe there's something that need, needs to happen. Does she need to not just have a sense of what's happened, but but come back to where she was? I mean, what is it exactly that uh, that needs to happen for her to be released from this and and that kind of thing? Is it's not totally clear to me as I watch it, but obviously the whole thing is speculation. But you know, the the ones who have the divine star are reincarnated until they come to their senses. I think, in effect, that is her last reincarnation. Uh, and uh, as with most religions that believe in reincarnation, you don't remember your previous one until you're enlightened, and then you remember all of them. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, maybe depending on which version you read or whatever of this, but, um, you know, Sophia... Is has takes this active role or, or will take this active role in, in their sort of eschatology of casting the demiurge and the archons into the abyss, and uh, so there, there's something. I, I'm curious. I, I'd be really interested in hearing how exactly it is that she is supposed to undo this thing. And, and, and I was interested in what you talked with this sort of this this idea of the pairing, because I was kind of wondering how. I mean, it seemed to me that. Just like it is that Sophia is who who brings about the demiurge with you know sort of not realizing what she's doing, right? Um, it's it's man's wisdom in a sense that creates the the atomic weapon that creates this great capacity for evil, which the demiurge you know which is you know representative of, of the demiurge because of its capacity to not only create but also destroy because what it creates is destructive, right? Um, you yeah, maybe that's that kind of whatever that is that brings about. That, I don't know, that kind of wicked wisdom is sort of in Laura in a way, I suppose. Um, I'm, I, I was kind of thinking about what you talked about, that pairing there, and if that sort of helps make sense of this notion that wisdom is Laura, but it's also what creates the, you know, the demiurge or this sort of this great capacity for destruction. Um, yeah, it's like the cause and the effect are unbuckled and uh, presented almost in parallel. Uh, but that's part of the myth. There's the 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 heavenly Sophia, who's ignorant, being the last one in the sequence, and the uh, the reflection, uh, the mirror image, like the the Hyde version of Jekyll, uh, and um, she she's trying. She thinks she has to engage in depravity to make her unfit for Bob's use. Hmm. Though I, I don't quite get what I saw. She, she's trying to make it impossible to, to do whatever nefarious deed Bob will lead her 
to do. I mean, it's my memory, I'm sure, is fragmentary on this, but Lynch is trying to make it difficult. It's like he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The whole <laughs> thing is kind of like a Gnostic paradox. And so it doesn't all readily make sense. It's like some of uh, like a Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive where you have parallel realities going on and they evict. So it's hard to make linear narrative sense of it. Uh, and, and I think this is what calls for a kind of a structuralist approach. You've got to bracket the, the linear plot logic at the uh, similar and parallel items, characters, situations, and all that, and then see how they relate to one another. You'll find that there are sets of paired opposites. And this works out amazingly well with uh, the Oedipus myth, which was the one he zeroed in on, but I think also the Garden of Edens. And, uh, and I think that's kind of what's happening in Twin Peaks. And, and he's telling you right off the bat with the whole twin motif. Hmm. That does kind of make sense of how the, the underlying myth themes are being juggled. I'll shift gears a little bit because I wanted to get your thoughts on this. The um, the woodsman characters, the ones who go around asking God of Light, mm. um, and I, I sort of presumed that that they that they're trying to extinguish the light, which is why they're what the, it's what they're asking. They're trying to find the light to extinguish it. Um, and I, I wondered if there was relevance at all. And, and you know, it, it is tough sometimes because you don't know how much is just uh, you know David Lynch just sort of shooting from the hip and how much of it is, you know, well, I've read this and this was kind of interesting and I'll kind of duplicate it here. Um, but the fact that they're called the woodsman, um, you know, you know, woodsman suggests those who are in the wilderness, um, which is in an ancient thought, at least is this sort of representation of chaos. And so they're these sort of agents of chaos, maybe who are trying to go into the world to extinguish the light. And it's, it's they who, um, when one of them gets onto the, the radio, he recites this, this poem, which I, I'd like, love to hear if you have any thoughts on what that means, the poem. But everybody in the town who's listening to the radio passes out, including Sarah Palmer, Laura's mom. And that's when that insect frog type creature crawls into her mouth. And presumably that, that's emerged from uh, evil realm. And, and as you said, is, is where that wicked influence from the Demiurge sort of comes into Sarah and also through Sarah into Laura. But I, I wondered if there, there was, if you thought there was any significance to them being the woodsmen. Well, this is a, a stab in the dark, but third group, the lowest one, uh, the, the uh, Sarkikoi are also called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, the Hylix, which means the wooden ones. Oh, uh, I, and uh, I think he's sort of subverting the Gnostic revealer mytheme because when he says, got a light, I, I just can't help thinking this is like the Gnostic revealer seeking out people who have the spark of light within them. I, I don't know, but I sure have, that makes more sense than the scene by itself. I don't know. And yeah. that poem, I, uh, I've been thinking about that. I'm stumped on that one. Yeah. Why pick the horse? Uh, I, uh, I, I'm sure that's got to have some kind of symbolic meaning from mythology. 
or why is it there, but I don't know what it is. I'm not a true yeah. Gnostic. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so yeah, in the, in the poem, he says something that the horse is the light of the eye and darkness within. I do know that um, in, in the original series, there's the vision of the white horse that shows up. Um, I think when, when Bob's around or before Bob shows up, ah. um, I don't know if there's a connection to the pale horse of revelation, which represents death possibly. Um, ah, could be, that, could be. That's the only, uh, that's the only thing I've got for that. <laughs> I agree. I think that the light that they're looking for is the divine spark, but I, I wondered if because of what they were, what they were trying to do is, you know, what they represented and how they were sort of ultimately destructive. You know, they, uh, they kill some people, and they also bring Bob back to life after Bob is shot. Um, and you know, so ultimately, their 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 role is is an evil one. It's it's, it's you know, it's it's they're on an evil mission. Uh, I wonder. I wondered if they were looking for the light or the divine spark in order to snuff it out. Oh yeah, I bet you're right about that. Um, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it, or possibly to be translated, it's not put it out. Uh, implying it might try. I bet you're right about that. I don't know if any of this is helpful because I, I th it was it, it was really helpful for me to hear you talk about it. But I'd imagine there's a lot of people uh, who watch this show who were interested in imagery and all that, but but couldn't put their finger on anything that was really happening as far as like trying to make sense of it. I, I, I've heard of uh, actors who've worked for Lynch who uh, you know would sort of say that he almost. Uh, you know, it was like almost like Jungian in his approach, you know, that you weren't really supposed to ask questions about psychology or motivation. He didn't like those kinds of questions. They bothered him. They annoyed him <laughs> because he was trying to tell this larger narrative that had nothing to do with human psychology. Whereas his, his wife, who's also a director, was, was very much the opposite. Um, or is very much the opposite. But it, it, it did help me to hear, you know, what you sort of, when you sort of posting about this, hey, it looks like there's some Gnostic elements here, you know, uh, you know, Laura's the fallen Sophia, Cooper's the redeemed redeemer, and, uh, you know, Bob and the other globules vomited forth from the demiurge of the evil archons, you wrote. There was so much that was there that I thought was interesting. Um, what in particular, you also mentioned the, the one-armed Mike who calls Cooper to wake up, and that that's yeah, the, yeah. the call from the Pleroma to the redeemer who's forgotten his identity and his mission. And so once I read that, I said, oh, that actually does make sense in a lot of this. And uh, yeah, it, is a, it just struck me suddenly. I think maybe it was seeing the Demiurge. I thought, don't tell me this is not Gnosticism. You're seeing on camera the Demiurge. This uh, <laughs> is fascinating, amazing. And no one can tell me uh, Lynch is not acquainted with Gnosticism. It's just as obvious as, uh, as the Wachowskis and Gnosticism. Sure. I have a tendency to want to be careful to attribute too much as to like, you know, what is it that the, that the, the filmmaker has read that's influenced him here. But I think sometimes it seems very clear. It seems explicit. And uh, there's so many of the connections make sense that it's difficult, I think, to, uh, to deny that, that that's what's there. Um, I had kind of a similar thought in, in you know, watching some of the, the more recent Batman films, um, you know, the, the, the dark Knight I think has something going on there where like Harvey Dent is, um, is supposed to be Adam or representative of mankind because he's good to start with, but he's corrupted by the influence of the Joker. Who's like the Satan figure. All he really wants to do is corrupt people. Um, and then Batman takes his place and he's ah. going to take the crime as a substitutionary, uh, you know, replacement. 
uh, you know, he, he's the one who's willing to, in order to make man or, or dent good again, uh, he takes on you know the evil on himself. Things like that, or, or even the Dark Knight, uh, or the uh, yeah. Batman versus Superman, there was something similar, I think, and it kind of brought out this like almost Moltmannian uh, kind of sense that, um, you know, Superman is viewed as uh, not trustworthy because he's this divine figure who lets evil things happen. Uh, and what it is that changes Batman's mind about Superman, that he's maybe not uh, this evil, uncaring God, is that he has uh, taken on humanity in a very real way. And if he's done that, then perhaps he's not so far away and distant and, and you know, he, he understands uh, our pain and, and experiences our, our suffering with us. And so there are so many little connections there on some of these things that you, I think you end up having to say, I think this is what's happening here. And I think what's going on in Twin Peaks, once you started talking oh, yeah, about that, I noticed yeah. so many. Um, and I wonder, I wonder how intentional that was from the beginning. If this, these were themes that Lynch was putting into the original series or not, um, they're definitely more explicit here. But, th- but there are places that it does seem to make sense. Uh, that duality, like you said, that the whole even the name of the show, Twin Peaks, the two Bobs, the two Mikes, the evil that's in Laura, the good that's in Laura. There's so many of those things that are there that I think suggest a Gnostic reading, but. At the very least, in this new series, it's it's all over the place. I think you're right about that. Mm, oh boy, yeah, White Lodge. I didn't really realize what that would be. I mean, that phrase is taken from uh, uh, one of the Theosophical movements, Alice Bailey's uh, work. She talks about the the masters of the White Lodge and all that. Uh, and uh, I don't think she had a Black Lodge, but he's uh, drawn in uh, all sorts of bits and pieces it's really something to see yeah i'm silly is there anything else you wanted to, to highlight while we're talking about this I, th- I think we've kind of covered some of the major uh, major themes that are there yeah not about all the gibberish i can come up with <laughs> well um well the, maybe maybe we'll, we'll we'll kind of start wrap it up here um i uh wanted to give you an opportunity to mention some of your, your works. You're, you're a really interesting guy. I think there are certainly people who would be interested in reading what, what you have to, uh, what you have to say and some of what you've worked on. What are maybe some of your, your best-selling books you've written and what are a couple projects you've got coming down the pike? I think possibly the, the most popular book I've done was some years ago uh, called uh, the, the Reason Driven Life, which is obviously a kind of rejoinder to Driven Life by Rick Warren, which I, I regard as just uh, a degenerate uh, form of evangelicalism. Uh, and uh, I, I tried to critique his version of Christianity, though not Christianity itself, uh, and even if you're an atheist, there's such a thing as a kind of spiritual life, uh, and that seems to have uh, struck a note and showed him that there was a third way. Um, as to what I'm uh, working on now, I have a three-volume Bible introduction, Holy Fable, uh, and the uh, subtitles are um, The Old Testament Undistorted by Faith, uh, The Gospels and Acts Undistorted by Faith, and the third one, uh, The Epistles and the Apocalypse Undistorted by Faith. 
I think uh, no matter where you stand, there will be arresting uh, insights and suggestion in those uh, those books. So Holy Fable volumes one, two, and three. Uh, also, uh, another one that's going to come out in two or three months, Bart Ehrman interpreted um, uh, what's called how one radical New Testament scholar understands another. Hmm. Uh, and there I, I defend Ehrman from some of his critics from the right, but then I, I explain why I think he does not go nearly far enough. Uh, and so that I think will be interesting. And then also shortly, I have a thin little volume uh, called The Sage of Aquarius, which is a kind of higher critical commentary on the Aquarian gospel of Jesus the Christ, one of these channeled revelation things that came out 100 years ago, which is really a fascinating little item. And I figured, well, it might be fun to, to analyze its parables and sayings and what it does with the conventional gospels and all that. So The Sage of Aquarius. It, it isn't um, formatted yet, but it won't be too long. Wow. And and if somebody wanted to, uh, I think you do have a website as well. So if somebody wanted to sort of just start exploring a little bit more about you, they would, they would visit that presumably? Yeah. Robert M. Price with no punctuation um, at mindvendor.com. And that's mind, V-E-N-D-O-R. Robert M. Price at mindvendor.com. Also, I have a uh, Patreon uh, thing going with uh, frequent posts, little articles, uh, old academic papers from years ago when I was more conservative, uh, uh, reviews and so forth. Uh, and and my uh, monthly uh, human Bible podcast that you can only get through Patreon. Um, th yeah, so th those are things I'm working on. I could really use the help if anybody wants to become a Patreon supporter. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's robertimprice.mindvendor.com. And uh, oh. e even here, as I look at it, I see I, I also references to the Bible Geek podcast, the Lovecraft Geek podcast, <laughs> and uh, so many other cool stuff to check out. Uh-huh. Uh so yeah, fascinating stuff. I'll just I'll say this now because I, I have a I have a terrible I'm terrible at self promotion. I'll mention I also have you know website you can guys can check out if you're interested www.cantusfirmus.com cantus-firmus.com and a number of books on uh, Amazon if you want to search Cody Cook that's where I am. And thank you so much, Doctor Price. And I really especially want to thank you because this is the second one we've done and we've had a, a few technical issues both times and you've been incredibly patient and uh, I really appreciate that and uh, appreciate the, the color and the commentary and uh, just your uh, your general demeanor and, and uh, your insights that you've added to the podcast. No, thanks a lot. You're a great uh, dialogue partner. Thank you.